Uh, communion Sunday, we're going to dive right into God's Word this morning as we continue our uh, series, our study through the book of Philippians. We come this morning to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. I'm going to read verses 5 through 11, but the, the preaching this morning will be on verses 5 through 8. This is uh, what many call sort of the crown jewel of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And one of the most beautiful, some of the most beautiful words ever uh, penned, never to be received, uh, never recorded in God's Word. So Philippians chapter 2, uh, this comes right out of uh, Paul calling the Philippians and calling us uh, through his letter to the Philippians to humble selflessness. And it leads then into this hymn of Christ. Before we read it, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we turn our attention to Your Word this morning, I pray that You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit. And I pray, O Lord, that You would give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive the deep truths of Your Word this morning. Oh, Lord, may you draw us deeper into a deeper wonder and into a deeper worship of, of who you are, a deeper understanding of who Christ is and what he has done for us, that it may produce within us not only an astounding sense of wonder and worship, but also, O oh Lord, hearts that are shaped more to be like his in humble selflessness. Lord, we commit ourselves to you under the authority of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Philippians chapter 2. Again, I'll read verses 5 through 11, but the text, the message will focus on verses 5 through 8. We'll look at verses 9 through 11 next week. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset the same attitude, the same disposition as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. There are uh, some passages that, that seem almost too sacred to preach. We know, of course, that as Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed, and, and every word on the pages of Scripture, therefore, is, bears the fingerprint of the divine. But there are some passages that seem so drenched in divine truths that to speak about them with mere human words is only to diminish their glory. And this is one of those passages 
One scholar likened these verses to the soaring, unanswerable language of a Bach cantata, which is best understood by being heard out to the end and then heard again. The form of these verses, like I mentioned, is a hymn. It's a hymn that reveals the deep truths about Christ. And we, we don't know if this hymn was, was written by Paul himself or if it was probably more likely uh, written by somebody before Paul and Paul simply incorporated it into his letter. Either way, it doesn't really matter. The important point is that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used this hymn to reveal the mysteries of Christ. But we have to keep in mind the context in which Paul uses this hymn. We have, we have to hear this hymn as Paul intended it to be heard. And so uh, let me just sort of refresh your, your memories about where Paul has taken us throughout his letter so we can properly hear the words of this hymn. So the Philippians were facing opposition, and Paul called them to remain steadfast in the face of that opposition, to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, and to do that by standing firm. But living in this way, Paul said, is impossible without unity. And so uh, he talks about unity, and he calls the, the Philippians to unity. And this unity, like he said, as we saw last week, flows out of a heart, of, a heart condition of humble selflessness. And it's at this point that Paul introduces this beautiful hymn of Christ. He sort of sets before them the, the greatest possible demonstration of humble selflessness in the story of Christ to move them to humble selflessness in their relationships with one another. And when we put it in that way, it seems a little bit like overkill, doesn't it? A little bit like hauling out a cannon to kill a rabbit. But it was Paul's aim to so overwhelm the Philippians with the wonder of Christ that no shred of selfish ambition would remain. And that's my prayer for us as well as we contemplate the words of this beautiful hymn. There is a, a natural movement to the hymn. It falls uh, into, into two parts, and it's kind of like a parabola. There's a, it goes down back up again. And so uh, the, the first part depicts the downward descent of Christ's willing humiliation. And then the second part, verses 9 through 11, which we'll look at next week, depicts the upward ascent of his exaltation. There was one preacher that I know, a professor of mine, who, uh, when he preached this text, he, he uh, took out a stepladder, and he started his sermon at the top of the ladder, and then as he went through the first part of the text, he made his way progressively down, and then in the second part of the text, he went back up again. I'm not going to do that this morning, but I thought it was an interesting way to depict the, the natural flow and movement of this text. So the hymn begins at the top, and it gets progressively lower. And every phrase on that descent, every rung on the ladder is loaded with meaning. And so as we trace the descent of Christ, I will do my best to let the text speak for itself and to try to draw out the meaning of those phrases and not say too much to diminish its beauty. So the hymn begins at the very top by showing how Christ humbled himself in his divinity. Paul says that, that uh, Christ, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
That he is in very nature God means that he was and is in the very essence of his being God. He is not similar to God. He's not a created being who is much, who is most like God. He, uh, he, he didn't just have the appearance of God. And, there, and there, this, by the way, uh, is, is everywhere in, in culture today where people will happily embrace a phantom Christ or a human Christ, but they will not embrace a divine Christ. Any Jehovah's Witnesses, whoever comes to your door, will be coming with that perspective. Christ is in his very nature, eternally and truly and completely God. There was never a time when he was not God. The word translated nature is the Greek word morphe, uh, which brings together both being and form. And so it means that he possesses all the qualities essential to God, both in internal substance as well as in external manifestation. Now, this is one of the, the clearest statements in Scripture about the divinity of Christ. And of course, we see a, a few similar statements in other places, like we see a, one, for example, in the prologue to John's Gospel, where John says, that In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him, all things were made. Uh, without Him, nothing was made that has been made. We see the same us. Similar idea in the opening words of the book of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory, not a re- reflection of God's glory, which, which any earthly thing or being or created being could do to reflect the glory of God, like Moses did. But that's not what, what the writer of Hebrews says. He wasn't the reflection of God's glory, he was the radiance, the very source of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Or as Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, it's from passages like these, and and our text here in Philippians especially, uh, that the Nicene Creed developed its definitive statement on on Christ in the midst of all kinds of swirling uh, 3rd and 4th century controversies about, well, how do we understand who Christ is, the nature of the Trinity, and, and who is Jesus really, and all these things, and they came to this language, that he is true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And through him all things were made. Well, the point that Paul is making here in Philippians is that Christ was and is in his very nature then the highest of all beings. He was and is truly God. He shared the glory of his Father in heaven. He had angels adoring him and and bowing down before him. It was through him and for him that the brilliant galaxies were spread out. It was through him and for him that the painted bunting was given its color. It was through him and for him that the majestic mountains were put in place. And it was through him and for him that the human race was made to be the crown of all creation. It is around him that the, that the whole created universe revolves. But in his 
divinity. Though being in very nature God, he demonstrated humility. Paul says he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And that phrase, used to his own advantage, is a translation of a Greek word, uh, harpagmos, which means to grasp or to seize or to forcibly retain. And what it means is that, is that he didn't cling to his divine status for selfish ambition or gain. He didn't regard his equality with God as sort of a, a perk to be exploited for his own benefit. And think about this for a minute. Just think about what that really entailed that the, the, the highest place that heaven affords was his by his sovereign right, that the perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the indescribable beauties of, of the highest of the heavens. As Almighty God, he could, he could have chosen to hold on to these things for his own enjoyment. He could have chosen to live forever in the personal bliss of his own uninterrupted glory. And think about that for a moment. That was his right to do that, just to, I'm going to dwell and live in my own. This is great. Heaven is great. The Father is great. The Spirit is great. Togetherness with them is great. I'm just going to enjoy this forever and live in my own uninterrupted glory. But he didn't. He refused to make a single selfish choice with respect to his divinity. He did not use his equality with God to his own advantage. That leads then into the next phrase, the next rung of the ladder in this downward descent. He humbled himself in his incarnation. Paul says, so instead of, you know, uh, uh, Seeing his equality with God as a thing to be used to his own advantage, instead of that, Paul says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That he made himself nothing is a translation of that Greek word that I introduced to you last week, that Greek word, kenoo. Uh, like I mentioned, the basic meaning of that word is to empty. So Paul said in verse 3, just to bring you... Back to last week, in verse 3, he said to do nothing out of selfish ambition or kenodoxia, uh, vain conceit, empty, literally empty glory. So to the compound word keno and doxia, empty and glory. And now Paul uses that same word, at least the first part of that compound word, the first word in that compound word, keno, he uses that word in reference to Christ. And so it means that he, he emptied himself. Now, some translators have gone away from that a little bit because uh, of a mistake that the, that the so-called canonic theologians made in the 19th century, and that is that they understood from this passage that Christ emptied himself of his divinity or of his, some of his divine attributes. That is a, a mistaken understanding of this text. And it's a tragic and heretical misunderstanding at that. He did not in any way set aside his divinity or his divine attributes. They say kind of like, you know, derobing or, you know, taking off one set of clothes and putting on another. No, that's, that's not what Paul says. Paul says simply that Christ emptied himself. 
And as we'll see in a minute, emptied himself by taking something on. And so it's, a, it's an odd expression, but he emptied himself. It's an expression of complete self-renunciation. It means that he poured himself out. He became so utterly and completely selfless that he didn't have within himself a single ounce of selfish ambition. That's what it means that he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his divinity or of any, any of his divine attributes. He emptied himself of any selfish ambition, all and every ounce of selfish ambition. He poured himself himself out. And the means by which he emptied himself in this way was by becoming human. As Paul says, he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So he who was in very nature God took upon himself the very nature, that's the same word morphe again, the very nature of a servant. And the word servant is a translation of the Greek word doulos, which the most basic meaning of which is slave. So he who has eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity, eternally existed as God, entered into time and space in human flesh. He became truly and fully human. Never has there been a greater demonstration of one so high, stooping, so low. And it is impossible for us to comprehend the extent of that condescension. We, we, we might, you know, we can bring our own little imaginations to it, our own little scenarios to it. We might, for example, imagine the most powerful king of the most powerful nation in the world hearing about a problem with some maggots in some obscure corner of his kingdom. And not only does this, this king care about that maggot problem, but he cares so much that he decides to become a maggot himself and to live among them in their flesh and all the essence of what they are as maggots, living among them in their filth, because it's the only way that he can truly help them. We, we might imagine a scenario like that, but even that falls short of what Paul is talking about here. When, when Jesus came to save us from our sin, he didn't come as God in all his glory, stepping down from heaven, which would have been an amazing thing in and of itself. He came as a human. And he didn't come as a human of high status, did he? He didn't come as a mighty king. He didn't even come as an adult or as a teenager or even as a baby for that matter. In the words of the bioethicist Nigel Cameron, God took human form. And he took it not simply as a baby, but as the tiniest of all human beings, a mere biological speck. At the heart of the Christmas celebration lies the fact of all facts that God became a fetus. And he didn't become a fetus in the womb of nobility. I mean, we just keep going lower and lower on the human scale. He didn't birth himself into the ruling Roman Empire of the world. He didn't even choose a middle-class family with the financial means to give him sort of a head start in society. He became a fetus in the womb of a poor teenage girl in a conquered nation, in a backwater town, about which people turned their noses and said, can anything good ever come from Nazareth? J.B. Phillips imagines a young angel being shown the splendors of the universe by a senior angel. And the little angel began to grow tired and bored. He had been, at this point, shown whirling galaxies. Galaxies. 
and blazing suns and, and wonders that no human eye has ever beheld. In his mind, after a while, it all just seemed to be so much. There was just an awful lot of it all. And, and when the senior angel finally came to our galaxy and he pointed to the earth, which looked as dull and as, as a dirty little tennis ball compared to the glories of what this young angel had seen, and the senior angel said, I want you to pay attention. I want you to perk up a little bit and pay special attention to that planet. And the young angel said, well, it's so small. It's kind of dirty. You know what? What's so great about that planet? There's nothing special about that. I've seen all these amazing, splendid, you know, glorious things. Why would you? Why would you want to pay attention to that dirty little dust ball of a planet? And the senior angel said, "Well, that is the visited planet. That little ball was the one visited by our Prince of Glory." And the young angel bowed his head in reverence and in awe. Though being in very nature God, Christ emptied himself by taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness. The word became flesh, John said. The word didn't appear to be flesh. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He became what He had never been before without ceasing to be what He had always been. He chose to enter the world as a fetus, to be born as a baby, to live as a man, to suffer as an outcast, to be spit on as a criminal. He exchanged the homage of angels for the hatred of man. He remained everything involved in being God and at the same time became everything involved in being man except that he did not sin. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And that brings us to the very bottom of the ladder, the bottom of Christ's descent, the lowest rung, and that is that he humbled himself in his death. Paul says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I prefer that translation, which I've added, as you maybe could tell. In the NIV, it says, humbled himself to death. I prefer humbled himself to the point of death because he didn't, he, he, or he was uh, obedient to death. He was never obedient to death. He was obedient to the Father to the point of death. Death had no mastery over him. He willingly went to death. He wasn't obedient to death. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one who is in the very highest place had willingly descended to the lowest possible position that the King of glory, the one for whom and through whom all things were made, the one in whom all things hold together, the king of glory endured the shame of the cross. The author of life subjecting himself to death, the one before whom angels bowed in worship, now mocked by passers-by as he hangs stripped in weakness and naked and indignity on the cross. Death by crucifixion was the most excruciating 
and the most humiliating way to die. It was a form of execution rightly reserved only for the vilest of criminals, for terrorists and slaves, and for those whom many in that day deemed to be subhuman. In Roman society, the very mention of the cross was considered an obscenity. There was nothing in all the world so loathsome and so insulting as the cross. And and yet Paul says that being found in appearance as a man, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that last phrase, which if this hymn was not written by Paul, that last phrase was probably added by Paul, that that even death on on a cross, that last phrase is the crowning shudder of humble selflessness. It doesn't get any lower than that. And it raises the question, why in the world would he stoop so low? What could possibly have moved him as the almighty God, the almighty king of of glory, to descend from the glory of heaven to the indignity of the cross? What in the world could possibly have moved him to do that? And the Bible gives a very simple answer, doesn't it? That it was quite simply his love for, for you and for me. His passion for redemption. It, to think of it this way, he had a greater priority than his own uninterrupted glory. And that greater priority was the rescuing of those he came to save. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, so beautifully, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's why he did it. To come down to us, to bring us who could never have been up here, to bring us to that place where we could never have achieved on our own. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, and emptied himself of all but love and blood for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love. How can it be that that thou, my God, should die for me? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we are given eyes to see the wonder of Christ's descent, the king of glory hanging bloody and broken on a cross, then, then, then we can't help but to see how, how woefully incongruent it is for us to cling to any shred of selfish ambition. Having, having seen that the depth of his selfness, selflessness, can you really then go and argue with your spouse about, about what you wanna, where you want to go or what you want to do for vacation? Or... Will we still cling stubbornly to our own competitive spirits and our arrogant opinions about different issues in the life of the church? It's a little bit 
Though, the, though it's from the opposite angle, but it's a, a little bit like watching an hour's worth of footage of horrific car accidents before getting in your car to drive. You, you cannot drive in the same way as if you, had not seen, if, if you had not seen that video. If you see that video, you're going to drive differently. Well, Paul has put before us this video, this hymn, uh, to show us the, the humble selflessness of Christ, and we can't live the same way as if we hadn't seen it. It's meant to change our relationships, to change the way we do marriage, to change how we treat our siblings, to change how we interact with our friends, to change how we relate to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if we find ourselves bickering and fighting and arguing and defending in our marriage, if we find selfish tendencies creeping back into our hearts, if we find animosity and tension and discord in the church, well, the best thing that we can do is to come back to this hymn and to gaze and wonder upon the one who poured himself out for us. It's in the shadow of the cross that that selfishness is stripped away. It's in the shadow of the cross that we behold A self-giving love so deep and so vast and so incomprehensible that it overwhelms whatever tensions, whatever divisions, whatever selfish ambitions we might have. And so there's nothing better for us this morning than to come together under the shadow of the cross in communion. Could we with ink the ocean fill And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Let's bow together. O Lord, King of glory, humbled to a sinner's cross. As we come before your throne in this silent prayer of preparation for communion, O Lord, draw us deeper into the wonder of who you are and what you have done for us. O Lord, hear our silent prayers of preparation this morning. in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. 
He poured himself out by taking the very nature of a, of a slave, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He stooped to the lowest possible position by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh Lord, as we come this morning to receive the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ poured out for us, Lord, give us a renewed wonder of who you are and what you have done. And work within us, O oh Lord, a humble selflessness that looks more and more like the mind of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.